Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Eric Thornton. Eric is a professor and associate professor at Université de Montréal. He's here to speak about flow-induced dilation in isolated blood vessels using pressure myography. Let's jump in. Question number one, Eric, perhaps you can start by answering this question. And that is, can you study effects of shear stress in a wire myograph preparation? Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting question. Yes, you can. It has been done actually by a Vermont group, a doctor's group in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And what they have done is that on the wire myograph, they approach on the luminal sides of the segments mounted on the wire in the bath, a small cannula in which they were flowing physiological solutions. So you can create a shear, a shear stress by using different flow rate, but the shear stress here is going to be constant because of course, in the wire myograph, you are measuring isometric change in tension. And so there is absolutely no change in, in, in geography, if you want, of the vessel. The shape of the vessel is not changing. So there is no involvement of the diameter whatsoever. So it's, it's a bit like studying the effect of shear stress on cultured cells. So you are going to probably, you are going to see dilations, but the shear stress will be constant. So it's possible, okay. but it's not possible. Okay. Our next question is, what kinds of responses will you see if you increase shear stress in a vessel in which the endothelium has been damaged? So that's part one to this question. What would you see in, if you increase shear stress in a vessel where the endothelium has been damaged? And how do you know if the endothelium is damaged or if it's just a normal response of the vessel? So Eric, could you tackle that? Yeah. Yes, so the first I'm going to respond to the second part because how do you know if the, the endothelium is, is healthy or not or is functional or dysfunctional? I think the best, the, if you don't know first, if you are completely masked on your experiments or the origin of the animal, um, there is a, a good way, is of course, to pre-constrict the vessels and to drop uh, a dose of acetylcholine, for example, which is a muscarinic agonist and is going to induce endothelium-dependent vasorelaxation. So that's that's the first thing. And uh, you know that if at one micromolar, usually, but that may change depending on the vascular bed, there is a vasodilations more than 60%, then the endothelium is quite functional. Of course, then after that is practice. If you will know that when you do flow-mediated dilation, you're expecting a dilation, then it should fall within your expected results, of course, in terms of change in diameter. And that's bring me back to the first questions that how do you know that the endothelium is dysfunctional? Well, if you have a control experiments with healthy animals and you know that the, the animals are healthy, then you should, been you should be able to create a, a very good relationship between shear stress and vessel diameter. And any deviation from that, so a lower dilations for a similar shear stress, should be interpreted as a dysfunctional and endothelium. 
here again, practice is, is important and you need to be certain that you master the, the system and that you are able to, to generate reproducible experiments. Okay, fantastic. And we'll move along to the next question. Unless Jerry, do you have anything to add to Eric's response there as well? I guess I would just underscore using that formula spreadsheet that Eric provided to calculate your shear stresses that you're working with at the flow rates that you're working with and, and to make sure that your shear stresses are not exceedingly high at the flow rates you're dealing with. So. Okay, perfect. Here's a question actually that was asked during the registration process, but I thought I would bring it up now, and that is, does shear stress affect responses to vasoactive compounds like, for example, endothelin? Yes. In fact, it's, endothelin is, a, is a, a good example. Endothelin is known to be an extremely potent vasoconstrictor and almost the only uh, dilator that can counteract the vasoconstriction induced by endothelin is nitric oxide. And because shear stress in usually in normal vessels, is going to promote the release of nitric oxide. So shear stress should be a very good vasodilator on the vasoconstriction, a preconstriction induced by endothelin. But you may not have similar efficacy of shear stress. The relationship between dilation and shear stress may be different using endothelin. For example, if you preconstrict your vessel with a depolarizing solution containing an increase in potassium, for example, there, the response may be completely different, and this has to be expected. So that's important. If you, if you are using a preconstrictor to to really generate data, make sure that either you use always the same, or if you want to to study the impact of the preconstrictor on fluid dilations or fluid responses in general, then you have to, to be attentive to this question. So that's another, it's another protocol rather, you know, the, the hypothesis is different. So okay. you need to select your, your preconstrictors and stick to it if you just are looking at endothelial function. But if you really want to study the impact of a preconstrictor, then you have to be focusing on the preconstrictor and its potential secondary effects. Okay, fantastic. I guess a question for either of you, maybe again, Eric, we'll start with you. Is it normal to see flow-induced dilations or flow-induced constrictions? Is, does that ever happen? And can you comment on that? Yes, flow-induced constriction have been shown in, uh, for example, cerebral arteries with very high myogenic tone or very high level of reconstriction. Um, so that has been shown, and this has been published uh, in, in previously. As you have seen in the, um, depending on the level of shear stress, so not only the, the pre-constricting tone or, or the tone before inducing flow, but also the level of shear stress, and this is, as said Jerry a bit earlier on, very high level of shear stress may induce a constriction, and this also has been shown by, by authors. So I think there is uh, everything can be expected depending on the vascular bed and the experimental conditions. So if the norm is a dilations to physiological shear stress values, if so to speak, I mean ex vivo, that the norm is vasodilations, but vasoconstrictions can be seen as well. Okay, great. Ali asks, and I'll just read this. I use mesenteric arteries when I use a flow rate of 10 to 20 microliters per minute. The endothelium gets damaged. 
So 10 to 20 microliters, the endothelium gets damaged. But he says that anything below that doesn't start the flow system uh, using his pressure myography technique uh, with one chamber. So, uh, Jerry, do you want to maybe start by tackling that question? Yeah, I guess it depends on, I'm not quite exactly sure what the, the attendant was referring to regarding uh, the flow system not being started at flow rates below 10 to 20 microliters per minute. I, I'm wondering if he's getting to, the, if he try, if he's using some sort of a pump to deliver the flow, it might be that he needs a smaller tubing in the pump so that the pump motor could turn faster to deliver a lower flow rate. It might be that you need to work out the kind of where you're sitting and the capabilities of the pump system. That's the first thing that kind of comes to my mind. Um, okay, uh, and Jerry, it, it sounds like an equipment issue that might need to be worked out. Okay, okay. And, and he has just confirmed actually that it could very well be that pump. So yeah. I think that's a good uh, assessment on your part. And I will also mention that you know, for all of you asking questions, uh, we will reach out to you if there are any specific additional questions that we might have. Perfect. So there's a question, a couple questions here that seem similar. So let me find them and ask them. Eric, in one of your slides, you had mentioned that shear stress is constant in the body. And Philip asks, what about when there are pulsatile changes in flow? And then Anish also asks, you know, how does a vessel respond to oscillatory shear stress? So I think maybe perhaps those are the same questions. Yes, well, that's that's a $100 million question because we don't know really. And the um, when I was mentioning that, referring to the fact that shear stress is constant, is the mean shear stress, of course, is is constant. And, and especially in... Um, in the small arteries, of course, in, in the aorta as well, but, but this, of course, you understand that it's going to change during the pulse. What is the impact on the pulse on shear stress? I don't know. Honestly, I, we know that, for example, in, during extracorporeal circulation, during surgeries, bypass surgeries, you can use the, the, the surgeon or the anesthetist can use two types of pump. One that is going to be a constant flow, or one that is going to be with a pulsatile flow. When there are some publications that came out and are available on the web, PubMed, that clearly show that if the pump is pulsatile during the extracorporeal extra circulation, during the bypass surgery, there is a better kidney perfusion, there is less inflammation, and the recovery post-pump is faster. That being said, there is no big difference in the long term. After two or three days, those change in inflammations on kidney perfusion are, are not different between the two pumping system. But of course, we don't. We know that for the kidney because this is relevant during the surgery. This is something that is closely monitored, but we have no idea what's going on, and there are really limited data available on that. And uh, it's becoming, I think, it's going to be a, a crucial issue, and we need to understand more about that because if you know with patients with ventricular dysfunctions and heart failure and end-stage heart failure, we are implanting now a device, a little pump, that do not generate a pulse. And so, in fact, we don't, uh, it works. I mean, there is blood flow, 
and uh, organ perfusion and it works very well and it's very good for the heart that regenerates if i may say so or we uh, yeah recuperate i don't know if i can say that uh, and uh, but we don't know what's what's the impact in the long term of the uh, on on organ perfusion and adaptation to change in pressure that's that's an open question uh, so you can study that and you will get something new that's for sure <laughs> Okay, fantastic. Uh, great answer. Question from Anand. He asks, could increasing shear stress be causing the release of ROS and superoxide, which might be preventing a dilation? I guess, That's yeah. a million-dollar question. <laughs> uh, a, I guess it's possible, yes. But our experience, for example, is that shear stress tend to be more antioxidants, if I can say that, or, or stimulate the generation of, of free radicals much less than an agonist, for example. Acetylcholine, for example, in, in isolated cerebral arteries of the mouse is going to dilate, but this dilation is going to be much improved if you simultaneously an antioxidant. Whereas if you simultaneously add an antioxidant to flow-mediated dilation, in our experimental setup in mouse cerebral arteries, we don't see a very strong increase in the vasorelaxation. So it's probably you will see that in potentially in dysfunctional endothelium, in vessels isolated from animals with diabetes or atherosclerosis or in age animals. So maybe you are going to see an impact of free radicals on the flow-mediated dilations. But it will be difficult, you know, to assess whether it's the background of free radicals produced by the endothelium or if it is really flow itself that is going to stimulate the release of free radicals. I would tend to think that it's probably the background because I think we are, we have been selected for millions of years with this system and I'm sure that flow is cannot be <laughs> that bad, but this needs to be tested. But honestly, uh, right now, I don't know how to, to imagine a protocol to try to assess how flow itself can stimulate the release of free radicals on top of the basal release of free radicals by the endothelium, for example, or the whole vessels. Russ has asked, have you done work on larger conducting vessels in do you stretch the vessels to quote-unquote in vivo length prior to reactivity studies? Hmm. Yes, that's that's a good question. We do. We have used, for example, larger vessels that the renal artery is bigger, much bigger. Something like from from the, the from mice that would be almost 400 microns, which is very big for us. And so in general, for all type of vessels, we just make sure that the vessel is stretched by. 10% of the passive length, for example, when you have your segments in your in the bath and you have tied it up on one cannula or macro pipette, when you mount it on the second cannula and then we stretch for an extra 10%. So the, the vessel is straight, but not overstretched. And uh, that seems to work uh, quite well. Great. Hopefully, uh, that's an excellent answer, and Russ, hopefully that um, is a good answer for you. And ask, actually, Eric, Russ also asked if there's a shear stress range you like to stay in 
uh, within during a typical experiment? I guess it depends on what you are looking at. For example, I've seen protocols when you stay around 10 to 15 times per square centimeter, which is, you know, the physiological range is considered to be anywhere between, it's in some, in most publications around 15 times per square centimeters. Okay, that's the average, uh, what's supposed to be the average physiological shear stress. So if you want to work at this level and then, for example, change your preconstrictor, change the intraluminal pressure, because you can do that, you can change intraluminal pressure without changing shear stress and or flow rate, but you will have to adapt, of course. That, that is going to be complex, uh, changing one parameter on top of another one. For example, if you have shear stress and you want to change the diameter, of course, your shear stress is going to change, but probably you are going to have an adaptation. So it's not that easy. Below five times per square centimeters, I don't think it's very relevant. We all do it. I mean, we do a full shear stress relationship between diameter from zero to one, two, three, ten, up to 25. We rarely go above 25 because that is not physiological. I don't think the vessels can stand it very much. And uh, But below, below five, I don't think it's very relevant. Above 25 is not relevant either, times per centimeters, per square centimeters. So um, this is what I could say. But it will be dif difficult really to study to use a protocol where you have a, a base, a basal shear stress, or a flow rate, and you want that is by itself going to modify or to regulate vessel diameter, and on top of that, adding, for example, other manipulations that will change the, the smooth muscle reactivity directly. For example, adding an agonist, a phenylephrine or endothelin or depolarizing uh, the vessels. That is going to be uh, difficult to uh, to control, but it's feasible. It's feasible, and it's certainly the logical thing to do to do to look at reactivity of the vessels in the presence of a constant flow. That's what we have in vivo. Perfect. Let's ask one more question, and then we'll wrap things up. Let's see here. Oh, what's a, a good one? So Todd asks: Would you expect vascular tissue? So, for example, coronary arteries to have differential responses to vasoactive compounds that cause drug-induced vascular injury versus vasoactive compounds that do not. So I assume that will be in the presence of shear stress, I guess. Yes, I would, I would say so. Yes, of course. I think I put all things together. It's um, as long as the, the, the drug, the vasoactive compound that you add on the vessel is going to influence the status of the endothelium, for example, the resultant change in diameter will be different. That's obvious because you are going to perturb the ability of flow to stimulate uh, and to generate the optimal response. The optimal response being regulating the diameter of the vessel through the stimulation of the endothelium, essentially. So okay. if you have compounds that are not going to stimulate the endothelium and damage the endothelium, then normally the flow is going to compensate flow and shear stress. The ability of the endothelial cells to, to sense shear stress is going to lead to an adaptation of the vessel diameter, whatever the preconstricting agent is. But there, is, there are going to be differences. Endothelium, if we come back to that, is very powerful vasoconstrictors and 
there is not, uh, to my knowledge, there is not a clear demonstration in vivo that underthelling is generating a tone, although uh, it's not hypotensive, for example, if we use a blocker of underthelling, at least in doses that are commonly used. So, therefore, in vivo, if we pre-constrict with endothelium, maybe we are going to damage the endothelium. I don't know. I've never tried that. And therefore, the flow-mediated response may be altered. So, intuitively, I would say yes, there will be a very strong difference, but it needs and well-documented. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.